Ushers, come on down. And we'll share in our offering together this morning. Uh, please know when you give, it makes a difference. All ministry happens here because of your, your participation. Whether you give in an offering basket, uh, whether you write a check, whether you do automatic giving, it all matters. Please know that. In fact, just a reminder as we're doing that, every week there's a, if you're here in person, there's an envelope in the row that if you're giving cash or something, you want to get credit for that, you can stick it in there. Also, you've seen this last week. It'll be in this week and then next week as well. Night to Shine. A quick note about Night to Shine. A Night to Shine is an event that we do that is not in our budget. We deliberately don't budget for Night to Shine. It's one of those events that we do that we think is an, is an extension of the love of God to the community. And instead of putting it into the budget, um, we know it's going to be costly. We come to the church every year and say, we'd like you to give to it uh, to make this happen. So we in, intentionally don't budget it, but we know there's a cost. And the cost is not cheap. It's about $30,000. I shared that a couple weeks ago to do Night to Shine. And we've looked at whether you do it here, whether you do it somewhere else. It's just amazing how it goes. If we do it here, uh, which is we're on site this year, if we do it here, uh, the majority of that $30,000 is having to rent tables and chairs and all the staging, all the things that have to happen for that event. If we go somewhere else and has all the tables, has all the chairs, like a hotel center, we've done that before. We don't pay for that. We pay for the food, which is about $30,000. It's just amazing how that works. Um, and so it's not cheap, but as you've heard me say countless times before, it's one of the things that the church does that I think most appropriately represents the love of Jesus. There's, you know, and even in the world's view, they look at it and there's nothing we get in return. You know, it's not like we're getting people that, to give or to come to the church, you know, based on doing this night. It's purely to demonstrate the love of Christ to these families that come. So thanks for giving to that end and help making that happen. And also, here we are, week of, it's a huge week. Now, Hannah and her whole leadership team, they are well prepared. Uh, they are all planners and, and detail people. The details are in place. This is the week. Uh, weather forecast looks good. We've had, we've had below zero temperatures in the past. We had a snowstorm, major snowstorm the day of in the past. Looks to be about 35 to 36 degrees that we, we would take that and our, everything in order. You know, it's about 350 to 400 plus volunteers that make it happen, and that's all us, and so thanks for making, making that happen. Be in prayer this week, as all the details now come into place, and looking forward to an incredibly strong and, and good weekend and Friday night with Night to Shine, so thanks for your participation. So we're going to have communion this morning. Um, you don't have to get your cup out right now, but if you haven't gotten one, you've got time to go grab one, and in the middle of the sermon, we're going to have communion, so just make sure you have your communion cup, and I'll explain it as we, as we get a little closer. So Diane and I, we've been, we've been gone at a conference, and it was in a southern place that's been, you know, beach-type area. We had some days off to our own as well, and then we came back, and of course, we came back just over the weekend to 14 below zero, uh, and that's kind of actually kind of fun. I mean, it's wintertime. It's supposed to be cold, but I'm reading this article just yesterday. I was telling Diane, so Mount Washington, Mount Washington, New Hampshire. Did you read that? 46 below zero, actual temperature, wind chill, 108 below zero. They think that could be a, a record, but it's hard to tell. 108 below zero, 46 degrees below zero. And whenever we have these cold snaps, I, Diane has heard me say this before, I go in this mode, I think, you know, it's so cold. Just think how quickly life would be extinguished. You know, if it just stays cold for a month or so, boom, we're all done. We're the ice age. So anyway, think about that. Um, <laughs> so if, you, if, you're not, if you're not scared about the world now, just think about that. You're one cold night away, you know? But now seriously, I mean this, that I think about those things at times, and then I'm reminded of this. And so here's my, here's my note of encouragement in that bleak moment here. We get so wrapped up in our world of, of things it's so cold out, it's, 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 it's 14 below or worse, and, but look at the news. The news has got all sorts of stuff going wrong, wrong direction. It's real easy to be anxious, right? It's real anxious to look at the news and be anxious about the world. And I would just remind you that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what you read, no matter what it might be, can I just remind you, God has not changed. God does not change. 
And so you don't have to be alarmed. You don't have to be afraid. Well, we were coming back from our trip, and Diane just read an article, and, and she wasn't scared. She just made a comment. She said, hey, there's an American Airlines pilot that had a heart attack and died like four minutes after landing the plane, as we're getting ready to get on the plane. And now she wasn't bothered by that. And I made this statement. I wasn't trying to be trite, but I, I say this to all of us. You know what? I said, but don't remember, I mean, but remember this, when it's our time to go, it's our time. And if it's not our time, then we're safe as can be. Do you realize that? Do you realize that nothing in this world is going to happen without God's permission and hand on in the great plan that he has for this world? So I say to you, relax. Get on mission. Stay on mission. Don't get sidetracked. You can trust him. We're talking in these couple of weeks as we begin the year, we're talking about some things, not a series as such, so I suppose you can kind of put it into a series, things that would be helpful to know, to think about as you begin the year that might help you throughout the year. We've talked about how to, how to rebuild your life after life messes up your life. We've talked about how to, uh, how to get yourselves into trouble and get out of trouble. We do Jonah. We use the example of Jonah. If we can see how to get in trouble, then that helps us maybe keep from getting in trouble. We talked about the need to forgive others. Others. Um, that's a, the premium that Jesus said, listen, you got to forgive other people. And we talked about how to invest your life, not just spend it or waste it. And today we're going to talk about what happens when you're drifting away. What happens in our lives when we find ourselves adrift? Not as close to God as you once were. Find yourself in that moment thinking, you know, I'm not where I was in my walk with God. And what do you do in those moments? Now, some of the most frequent questions that I received through all the years of ministry are questions down the road that go like this. Well, how do I get closer to God? How do, I, how do I keep close to God? Or, you know, I feel like I've drifted. How do I get back to being close to God? I can't tell you the times I've had conversations with people that will have these high moments, you know, the high mountaintop moments with God, and they'll say to me, man, I feel so good right now. I'm so on top of the world. I feel so close to God. And then they'll say this, oh, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that. How do I keep, how do I keep close to God? And it's in any one of us who's walked with God for any length of time, we know that those are really real questions. They're very relevant. Because in our walk with God, there are moments where we find ourselves that we've drifted. Now, I'm gonna, I, I just wrote this part of this, the, the sermon early this morning. I'm gonna give you a whole sermon wrapped up, I mean, a whole sermon in like three minutes here. And don't get excited. It's not the whole thing. I got more, but this is just the thing I thought I needed to add in. But... This next couple of statements are, are absolutely critical to your walk with God. And I believe that with all my heart. So I'm not just kind of blowing smoke here. I want you to hear this. We're going to talk about what to do when you drift. But I need you to get this, this one concept you can take with you. Our relationship with God is a relationship with God. Just like we have relationships with one another. Now, I have a question for you. In your relationships with one another, if you happen to be married, I'll use this example. In your relationship with, with, your, with your wife or your fiance, the person you're close to, are you in the same level of affection and love all of the time? And the answer to that is no. Diana and I just came back from a conference, and after that conference, we had five days together uh, on a beach. And in those five days, it was fantastic. No phones, no, I mean, they were there, but we were shutting them off. We weren't attached to the world. It's just us having meals together, sitting at the beach, walking along and holding hands. It's just fantastic. And then we came home. <laughs> 14 degrees below zero, snow to be cleaned and shoveled, car wouldn't start, you know, walking in, stomping in, I'm, I'm, I'm covered with snow, I'm cold, my gloves, my hands are frozen, and she's standing there singing, how's it going? <laughs> Goes great, how about you? Is it the same? It's not. Listen, you cannot maintain the intensity of the high moment with God every day of your walk with God, Right? So, but my question I have is this. So we're not living in that moment where we were five days, just us and the beach. But does that change our love for one another? No. Do we love each other less? No. It's just that in the walk of life, there are ebbs and flows that happen along the way. Please know in your walk with God, you're going to have the same moments. So let me tell you the key. This is, this is a sermon all by itself, but here it is in 30 seconds. Let me tell you the key. When you're up here, it's no big deal because you're, you're up here with God. But when you're down here, either down here low or in the regular old walk of life, this just every day get up and do the right thing. Right foot in front of the left foot, left foot right, 
just keep doing the right thing. I see so many Christians that get washed out along the way because they just give up in some of the darker moments and they just stop doing the right thing. Just do it. And what you will find as every day you say, I'm just going to do the right thing today. You will find when you get a little way away from it and look at it, you'll think, what an incredible journey. And you'll see yourself closer to God than you ever imagined. Just keep doing the right thing. Now, we are going to drift at times. That's what I look at this morning. I, I, I have some books in my office through the years, and, and uh, this is an old, old book. It's called Bolton, Bolton Bloopers. Uh, it was a bunch of collection of you know, church bulletins. I mean, we don't use a bulletin anymore. And most, most places don't. But you know, the old days, they'd put the little, you know, they'd write things in the bulletin that wouldn't be quite right. Or things on church signs out front that wouldn't be quite right. This is always one of my favorite ones, and it says this. Irving Benson and Jessica Carter were married on October 24th in the church. So ends a beautiful friendship that began in their school days. <laughs> you know, marriage ruined another good friendship. There, that's, that's how you interpret that. Marriage wrecked another good friendship. Now, we know what that means, but I'd also say there's some meaning there that says this. Your walk with God doesn't always quite look the way that you thought it would when you, wrote, when you started it. And we'll find our times and moments drifting away. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, that, to what we have heard. Why? So that we don't drift away. All of us have known Christians in our lives who have drifted, right? And I'll talk about those Christians who have drifted. I won't talk about us. It's easy to talk about someone else. Let's do that. We all know those other people that you've looked at their lives and you just wonder whatever happened to them because they seem to have drifted away from their relationship with God. We know those people, and without judgment, we should take a look at their lives carefully because it could be us as well. You have those people you've seen walk with God and they seem to be so strong and so vibrant, all those things, and all of a sudden you realize, man, they're just not around anymore. Whatever happened to them? And it's not like they went to their church. They're just not even walking with God. Take a good look with no judgment because it's easy to do. I was reading this article about COVID in the church. I'll just really quickly give you a couple pieces. It talked about what COVID has done to the church. And in fact, a couple of weeks, I'm thinking of taking a Sunday and talking about what the church is going to look like, what the church looks like post-COVID. What this conference we were at was a group of pastors talking about those kind of things because it's not just us. So we live in a bubble up here, but the bubble is actually the same bubble about the things that we're dealing with. But this article said this. Now, so follow with me just a moment. So in a lot of Christians' lives, there's about a 10-year life cycle there are a lot of Christians that will come into the church, come to Jesus, they get active, they're involved, they're serving, they're growing. You, man, you look at them, you go, man, they're just a part of everything. And in a 10-year process, they go from being way up here to all of a sudden you realize one day, man, where'd they go? And we all know people that seem to be so vibrant in their faith at one point, and then you kind of go, where did they go? So what the researchers through the years have said that for some Christians, there's even some biblical analogy about the farmer throwing seed, and some seed falls in different places, and some sprouts out quick and dies fast. So there's a biblical analogy. But the researchers have said in the typical church, there's about a 10-year span that in many Christians' lives, they, they just look like they're right on fire, and then they just drift away. And then said this about COVID. COVID's taken that 10-year clock and has spun it down or, or condensed it down to 18 months. So what churches all across the world are recognizing is that there are so many people that at one point in time were so active, so engaged, so involved, but COVID kind of shrunk that down where all of a sudden they're just not there anymore. And we, we recognize that because, see, when we first went into COVID, we had to go online. Man, everybody was online in mass numbers because of fear. But part of it was because we want to be part of the body of Christ. The other part of it is there's this fear factor. Fear goes away and the numbers go down. But then we come back and you still can't tell who's who because when you're back, it's kind of slow going. But a year and a half or so later, many of us will go, man, whatever happened to so-and-so or so-and-so and so They seem to be so engaged, but now they seem to be so distant. You see, drifting happens in every one of our lives. And it's a really easy thing to have happen so what happened to them? What can happen to us? It's good for us to take a look at it. And I would say, I want to give you some steps here on drifting. So what do you do when you find that you've drifted away from God? Let me give you the first step. The first step that seems to make sense to me is admit that you've drifted away from God. To actually admit it instead of denying it. Oh, no, 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 I'm still close to every event. I just kind of watch online. I'm still as close to every event. I just don't do this or this or this. I'm not talking about church tents. I'm about your walk with God. And first is just to admit it. To admit that that's true, it's true. 
To admit that there are times where I'm not as close to God and if I'm not careful, that moment of I'm not as close to God as it used to be could be a new lifetime where I have walked away from God. Now, admittedly, in a lot of our lives, we're not running away from God. That'd be the Jonah story, right? When God specifically tells you, I want you to do this, and you say, no, I'm going to do the opposite. That was Jonah's story. But for many of us, it's not a matter of defiantly running away from God. We just tend to drift. And oftentimes, we don't realize how far we've drifted till we just realize there's this emptiness. This is the story of Peter. This morning, in our moments that we have, I want to look at a, a snapshot from a portion of Peter's life. And this story in Peter's life is happening on the night that Jesus was arrested and was taken and, and then, of course, pronounced guilty and put to death. And the beginning of the story is dinner together. Jesus and the disciples are celebrating Passover. They're having dinner together. And then it was shortly after that, in that dinner setting, the story begins to unfold. And after that is where we pick up in the story. Now, we don't have time to read it all because it's fairly lengthy. So you just stick with me as I'll fill in the pieces. And here we go, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. So they've been eating together, Jesus and his disciples. And he says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? In these verses, I want to give you, in this story, I want to give you four key causes of drifting away. This is just the first step here in admitting it. And part of admitting it is recognizing why, because it helps us to see it. And we see in other people, it helps us see ourselves. So he gives us four key reasons why we tend to drift away. The first one's wrapped up in verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. The first reason we're going to drift away is overconfidence. The first reason we get ourselves in trouble, kind of drifting away from God, is overconfidence. Peter says this, listen, the rest of them, they probably will fall away, but not me. The rest of you, probably not me. You see, I'm rock solid. You see, I'm so mature in my faith, and you clearly, clearly you're not, that you probably will drift away. You probably will abandon Jesus, but you know what? It will not happen to me. Overconfidence. Overconfidence is oftentimes a starting place of our drifting because what happens in that moment, we begin to think this. I've been walking with God long enough that I got this. I got this. I can do this. I don't really don't need his help. In fact, some of us have the hidden attitude that kind of goes like this. You know, God, feel free. Feel free to go help those weaker Christians because I'm rock solid here. Feel free to go invest your time in people who really need you because I don't really need you. Because I've got this. The Bible reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you can read it sometime, verse 12, it just says this, you know, if you think you have arrived at a position where you cannot fall, he says, be very, very careful because you're next. Whenever you get to that place of overconfidence where it's all you, be careful. See, the problem we have in this walk with God is a thing called ego. And I'll give you a good definition for ego, E-G-O, edging God out. And what happens with that is simply this. I come to a place in my spiritual walk where I feel like, you know, God, I'm, I'm pretty strong here and, I, and I've got this. Friend, I, I, I can tell you this right now. Every day in my walk with God, if it's not him, I'm in trouble. I've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. And every day, if it's not him, 
I'm done because I don't have it in me. I need him. But we get to a place where we say, you know, it's my money. I got this. I think I know what's best. We get to a place where we say, well, it's my family. I know what's best. It's my marriage. I know what's best. My children, I know what's best. Overconfidence causes us to drift away. Friends, every day, it's him. It's him that maintains me. It's him that sustains me. It's him that gives me the strength and the power. If you ever get to that place where you realize, God, I got today on my own, be careful. A second cause we find is laziness. Overconfidence will cause you to drift in your faith. Laziness will cause you to drift in your faith. Verse, in your faith. Verse 34 and verse 37. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Laziness is another common cause of drifting away. We get lethargic. We develop bad habits and we give up the good habits. It happens in our marriages. It happens in our lives. It happens in our work and our career. It happens in our, our job and our parenting. And it certainly happens in our walk with God. Now make sure you hear this. It's not necessarily that you're doing something deliberately wrong. It's what you're not doing that gets you in trouble. You see, that's kind of the problem we have is because oftentimes we're saying, well, I'm not trying to de defy God. It's not that you're out to defy him. It's not deliberately that thing that you're doing that is wrong. It's what you're not doing that will cause the, dr the drift. Um, in this scene, in this part of the story, get the background here. So they've just had dinner together. together. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They just had the Passover meal together. Jesus needs to spend some time with his heavenly father. You see, Jesus knows exactly what's happening. And this is just hours now before he's going to be arrested. This is just the beginning moments in the process that would lead to his death. Jesus knows exactly what's in store for him. He knows what's going to happen just hours ahead of him. And there's a heavy heart and he needs some time with his heavenly father. So they go to the garden of Gethsemane and they are going to pray. So the disciples says, you stay here. He takes with him what we consider to be the cream of the crop disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. He says, you three come with me. They go a little further. His heart is heavy, overwhelmed with what's in front of him. So he says to them, you stay here, keep watch. And he's going to go spend time with God. And the prayer that we just, we just read, together he says to his heavenly father I know the cross is before me and if there's any other way that this can happen is there's any other way that redemption can come to the world any other way for sin to be atoned for man I am all in but not my will it's what you want so it's a, it's a very powerful and deep prayer and he says to his disciples, I want you to stay here and I want you to keep watch. Now, people all want to know often is, so what's the spiritual meaning of those words, keep watch? And I've heard pastors preach and come up with some deep spiritual meanings of the idea of keep watch. And for years, I've looked at it, trying to figure out what the spiritual meaning is. Because if you look into the Greek, if you look into the different languages, what it means keep watch, it means stay awake. Don't go to sleep. I'm going, you know what? I don't see any deep spiritual meaning there. He says to them, I'm going to go pray. Don't go to sleep. Now, I can read into that. I can give you little pieces to that. You're staying awake in your faith, all that. But the truth of it is, he just says to them, just don't go to sleep. Stay awake. Just, you know, I'm going to go pray. You know, and you can imp imply with that. You pray too. But he goes, just stay here and don't go to sleep. It's pretty straightforward. He comes back. What are they doing? They're sleeping. Now, when we read the story, most of us go, unbelievable unbelievable I mean he specifically tells you don't sleep and an hour later he comes back and they're all asleep and we go are you kidding me what's wrong with them don't be too judgmental let me give you some an, uh, analogy here see the Passover meal would be the equivalent of our Thanksgiving dinner now Thanksgiving dinner some of you, I can tell by the looks of your faces, already are feeling the guilt of the judgmentalism coming over your soul. At the end of our Thanksgiving dinner, you've pounded down turkey, potatoes, and gravy, the whole deal. And let's say you eat at 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But in this case, they've eaten at nighttime. It's, it's Passover meal would happen after dusk. So it's nighttime. So now it's 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And they're in the dark, in the garden. And you've just pounded down a big meal. You've just had your Thanksgiving meal. Forget the fact of 10 or 11 o'clock. At 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock after that meal, two hours after the meal, what do you want to do? 
Sleep. What are you fighting while you're sitting there? Sleep. In the middle of a conversation, your eyes are rolling back in your head. You're in the turkey coma, you know, that, that's the moment. And these guys have just had the equivalent of that meal. I would suggest to you that sleeping is the most natural thing for them to do at that time, right? This is not some grave sin they've committed. They just had a huge meal, and it's nighttime, and they're tired, and they fall asleep. See, the issue isn't some grave sin, but the issue is this. Make sure you catch this. It's not about the doing the wrong thing. It's about not doing the thing you need to do to keep yourself awake. I laugh. You know, I, I like, I love my Thanksgiving afternoon nap. I love my, my Sunday nap, you know. And, and something that's amazing to me how this happened. When the kids were little, it seems like I always got a good Sunday afternoon nap. But now they're all grown up. But with grandkids, it seems like the nap is elusive. Um, it's just, I can't figure out how that goes. They come over and, you know, I'm just dying for that chair and my feet up and it just seems to go away. When they were little, when my kids were little, okay, I'm going to tell you a story here. Don't, don't send me, don't send me your letters. I don't, I don't want to hear it. I, just, I got it. I've already confessed. Okay, but here's the deal. We would go to Chinese oftentimes for lunch after church. And Adam was younger, and we'd open, we'd open our fortune cookies, and everyone would read their fortune cookie. He couldn't read. So he'd say, what, what does mine say? What does mine say? So he'd say, well, give it to me. And I would read it, and I would say, Adam, you're to go home today and lay on the floor with your dad and watch Home Alone and take a nap. And he'd go, oh, really? And I'm going, it's, it's right here. He'd go, okay, and we'd go home, and he would get the blankets out, and he'd get the pillows out. And I've confessed, I confessed to him, I, you know, I may have read it wrong. Um, and, you know, I would get the best naps, and, he, and all because the fortune cookie told us we had to. I don't know what happens these days. I don't, my Sunday afternoon eludes me and whatever, but the natural inclination when you settle in is nap. Now, here's the question. Here's the deal. So, if you were determined now, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep. Does it make more sense for you to sit down in a leather recliner and put your feet up and just sit there and go, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep. Is that going to work for you? No. Because what it takes is your engagement to do something else. And that's the storyline here. You see, doing the right thing is hard. Exerting the energy to go do the thing, the things that have to keep you alert spiritually are not going to happen by themselves. Reading the Bible doesn't happen by itself. You have to read it. Joining a small group does not happen because you think you should do that sometime. It happens because you do it. Serving in the church, finding a place to engage and to use your gifts and to give your time and energy, that happens because not because you think that's a good thing to do. It happens because you go and you do it. And see, when you sit back and you kind of go, yeah, I should, you're going to drift. That's the third cause, laziness. Let me give you a third, a second cause. Third cause of drifting is fear. And man, this is very true for all of us. The fear of other people. Fear of their ridicule. Fear of what they'll say. Fear of what they'll, they'll do. The fear of their thought process and what they'll think of you. And the story tells us that after Jesus was arrested, they took him into custody and they took him back into town. And I've been to Israel many times. In fact, if you're ever interested, I, I'll announce shortly a trip next year that you could go if you like to go with me back again. And I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane. I know the path they would have gone down into the valley, back up to the other side, to the, to the high priest's house. And so the Bible says that Peter was there all along right with Jesus. But it doesn't say right with Jesus. It doesn't say that. In fact, what it says is this in verse 54, and Peter followed at a, what's it say there? Distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. If you want to put write a note, you could probably put this in your Bible, I think it'd be fair to say, he followed at a distance, and put in parentheses, safe distance. He followed at a safe distance. You ever try to follow Jesus in your life at a safe distance? You're, you love Jesus, you follow him, but I want to say just far enough away that, that maybe no one will really notice. That maybe it really won't get me into trouble. See, we would never say that we're ashamed of Jesus Christ. We would never say that we're ashamed of being a Christian. We like to think of ourselves better as just being undercover Christians. Can I ask you, what good is an undercover Christian in the world in which we live today for the kingdom of God? If you're thinking, I'm just going to play the undercover role for Jesus, you just need to know that's no role. 
That accomplishes nothing for the kingdom of God. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, fearing people is a dangerous trap. Because what happens when you fear people, your faith begins to get stifled. And that's when we drift. Fearing people is a dangerous trap. Fear of people keeps your faith nice and tightly hidden and packaged. And you need to know that a hidden faith is a drifting faith. Now, I also want you to know, I'm not talking about, and please hear this, I'm not talking about, I'm not asking, I'm not challenging you to be some kind of in-your-face kind of Christian. In fact, a lot of Christians I know should tone down this in-their-face rhetoric they have. Jesus, if you look at him, Jesus never modeled in any way, shape, or form this stand up for your rights and put it in your faith approach. Never. But also say, look at the model of Jesus. He never shied away from honoring his heavenly father and doing what is right. He didn't scream at everyone else having to do what's right. He didn't scream at they're wrong. He just did what was right. And in doing so, he called them to follow him. A couple of years ago, I was with uh, board members down in, in New York City. I serve on the board of Nyack College, now Alliance University. We were in a search process uh, for a president, and I was with a group of 10 or 12 of us, and we went to have lunch uh, at an Italian restaurant in lower Manhattan, right in Financial District. It was a beautiful you know, spring day. It was nice outside. We were kind of outside patio thing. And there were 12 of us sitting there, and I just, I'm, I'm leading the group, so I decided to pray for the meal. Now, just so you know, sometimes I will pray with my family or other people out. Sometimes I'll pray publicly, sometimes not. Please know it's not a spiritual thing. So if you know, if you don't pray out loud, it's not a spiritual, a terrible thing that you're not a spiritual person. I kind of read the, the time and place and I felt like this was a day I was going to pray out loud versus having everyone just pray themselves. But I would also say to you that if you're going to pray out loud, think about the fact of what you're praying. Think about who's listening. I think about that. And so oftentimes when I am praying out loud in the group, I will pray things deliberately thinking some might hear. And one of the things I want to hear is this, Lord, we're sitting down this incredibly great meal and I'm aware of the fact that while we're sitting here eating, there are people starving. And so Lord, while we eat this meal, would you help us to be thankful of what we have and not take it for granted? So I pray those kind of things because I think people are listening. So I pray out loud. I pray prayer similar to that. We get all done. There's four businessmen sitting off pretty close to us. One of them gets up, just kind of lean. He takes two steps to lean in, and he just says this. He says, I just want you to know it would be a damn better world if people would do that before every meal. I'm thinking, okay, probably not churched. Damn better world if people would do that. I don't think he knew God, but something caught his attention in that moment that maybe it's a better place if we would, if we would recognize there's a God. And I have to also tell you, it bolstered my faith to think that in this moment, somebody heard something that caused them to think about it. Don't be afraid. Don't let fear bury your, bury your faith. Let me give you a fourth one. A fourth one is this, living in the moment is one of the causes of drift. People who get caught living in the moment. Back to verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So look what he's doing. It's cold out. He follows Jesus at a distance and then he stops because it's cold out. There's a nice fire there. And in the moment he goes, you know, I'm here. I might as well warm myself. And so he's warming himself by the fire, by the way, by the other guards. Now, Jesus is in the process of being condemned to death. Jesus is in the process of the beginning process of torture and then being condemned to be crucified while Peter is warming himself by the fire. Isn't there something wrong with that picture? I mean, when you look at that picture, don't you kind of go, man, that, that's not right. Friends, it's so easy to get caught up in some distraction of life in the moment that subtly pulls us right out of the picture of following Jesus. And it's as simple as warming yourself by the fire. One commentator said this, when you, warm your, when you enjoy the world's campfire, you're going to get burned. I kind of like that. That was his thought. It's so easy to be following Jesus and get distracted along the way. Get, you know, you're serving Jesus and you're giving your money and you're being faithful and someone else, a good friend of you, they seem to have more stuff than you have. And you kind of go, well, I want that. 
They got a better house. Well, I want that. They get more recognition. I want to be recognized. And it's really easy to get caught up in the moment as opposed to living with a mission and a vision that goes beyond this world. Friends, we're here for such a short time. Don't waste your time. You know, I like to be wealthy. I like to not worry about money. And so we get caught up in the career or whatever it might be. And suddenly we get caught up in all sorts of things that in the end just don't matter. Warming yourself by the world's fire, by the world's campfire, while Jesus is calling us to live for the kingdom. There's just something wrong with that picture. I've been pastoring for a while now. And I've seen so many people who start strong. And I'm not talking about a year or two in. People who seem to, I mean, they're just, they're five, eight, ten years in. I mean, they're really serving God. Serving strong, you just think, man, rock solid. But then you begin to realize something's happened. And if you can get a closer look, you'd find that what happens to many of us, unfortunately, is we get distracted. So easily distracted by something in the world that grabs our attention. I have to tell you, the pattern is the same. I've seen this now through X years of ministry. The pattern's the same. Here's how it goes when you start getting distracted and drifting away. First thing is you stop your giving. People stop giving. They kind of think, well, it's kind of mine. It's mine, and so I'm going to use it the way I want, or this kind of thought process. I'm going to keep what I have so I can get more of what I want. Can't escape it. Jesus said this. Can't escape this truth. Jesus is the one who said the number one indicator of where the person is at in their walk with God is their money. Those were Jesus' words. The second thing happens, they stop praying. Stop giving, stop praying. That makes sense. Why do you want to talk to the God who has a different plan for your life when you're going to live your life independently of God's plan? And so we stop praying to God. I don't want to hear from him. I don't like what he has to say. And then the third step in process is they stop attending, stop serving. And this makes absolutely sense. The truth is, who wants to be around other people who are doing the right thing when I'm not doing the right thing? Who want to be around the people who are anxiously serving God and living on mission when I'm not serving God and I'm not living on mission? And so they're not attending. They don't serve. They slip away. Now, it's unfathomable if you think about it that we, we, we take this picture and we have, we have all that God has given to us and somehow we're willing to squander that in just a moment. That happens because we lose vision for what's taking place. And so what happens is this, we're around other people that are following Jesus, we're not, we get uncomfortable and we begin to isolate or insulate ourselves. And even while I'm preaching this, some of us are in one of those stages. You know, I don't know, I don't see giving, but you know that you're giving zero. You know that you're in a place where your prayer life is zero. You know that you're maybe a Sunday away from not attending again. Maybe you're here once, you haven't been here in six or eight weeks, but that's the new pattern. See, that's the way it goes. And some of you are right on that edge. And I believe that if that's where you're at, that maybe God had you here this day specifically for this next moment and these next words. Hear this. God wants you back. If you have drifted away and you feel like, ah, yeah, I'm just this close to walking away for good, God wants you back. God would want you to hear these words. I have more joy for you to give to you than you can imagine. Just come back and receive it. Just come back. He's inviting you. So the first step, what to do when you've drifted is admit it. And I said, recognize how we drift. Let me give you the second step. And with this, we come to communion. The second thing to remember is this. God wants you back. God always wants you back. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. You see, for some of us, we have this picture of God that he just waits for us to blow, up, to blow it, waits for us to sin so he can hammer us. I would suggest to you, if he's watching you and just waiting for you to sin, it's because he's just waiting to dump grace on you. He says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Find your communion cup, if you would. We'll share in communion. Don't, uh, don't mess with it yet. Don't, don't play with the top yet. I'll give you time to play with it and figure it out. Don't do that yet. But I want you to hold your cup, if you would, while I talk for these next couple moments. 
You see, so the, the night that they were having a meal together, Jesus had broken bread and he had the cup. They had the whole meal. And then he said this. He said, so whenever you do this, and of course that Passover meal was the, was the, the birthway to us having communion. And he said, whenever you have this meal, he said this, do this in what? Remembrance of me. He said, I want you to remember me when you, when you share in communion. So let me tell you three things in light of our sermon. Three things I want you to remember while you're holding this cup and just before we share in communion. Three things remember. First, remember that God loves, that God's love for you is unconditional. When you're holding this cup, please remember his love is unconditional. His love for you is not based on how good you are. It is now based in how perfect you are because you are not. His love for you is unchanged regardless of how bad you might be or how bad the things are that you have done. His love for you does not change. He cannot love you anymore and he cannot love you any less. His love for you is unconditional. Second thing I want to remember is this, that your sins, your debt has already been paid in full. This is not a license to go and sin, but every sin that you've committed and every sin that you will commit is covered. That doesn't mean just go and sin and be free. No, that would be a poor understanding of grace. But understand, if you would, that the debt has been paid. That's the story of the cross, that Jesus went to the cross to pay the debt of sin that you could not pay. Can you imagine? Can you imagine God looking down on that scene, the cross, watching the torture and now the slow crucifixion death of Jesus? As Jesus hung on a cross between, between earth and heaven, can you imagine God looking down on that scene and watching that and saying, yeah, it's not enough. You got to pay too. But he doesn't. He said, it's all finished. See, when Jesus took his last breath, remember what he said? It is finished. That doesn't mean I'm going to die now. It means done. Debt paid. Wipe clean. Please remember as you hold this cup, this cup represents the fact that everything in your past, present, or future, wipe clean by the grace of God. And I like this last one. Please remember this. God does not hold a grudge. On a personal note, I think I like that one most. Because we hold grudges. It's really hard sometimes for me to get a good picture of God because of the warped picture I have of me. Because we hold grudges. And right now, right now, all through this room, we can name the names and faces and the things that people have done to us that have hurt us that we hold against them. Because that's who we are. And I want you to remember that God holds no grudges. Somehow Christians, we at times think that God is just watching for these moments and when bad things come, it's punishment for our lives. No, not true. Listen to this passage from Psalm 103. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. Catch this part, I love it. He has removed our sins as far as, from us as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. He has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. That's a long way apart. They never come back. They never collide. Is that, I don't know if that's your story, but I hope it is. That's my story. The day that I gave my life to Jesus, he took all my past and he said, I'm going to take that sin and just throw it away. You're never going to see it again. It's wiped clean. Is that your story? If it's not your story in this moment, it can be your story. If you're a person that's here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never placed your faith in Christ. Right now is the time. Do it. It's a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying for me. I don't understand it all. But make me clean and take my sin and get it as far away from me as the east is from the west. I want to follow you. That's not your story. Make it your story. If you're already a follower of Jesus, a nice thank you would be appropriate. 
in this moment holding this cup just to say, oh, as far as the east is from the west, how good does that get? Thank you. And maybe you're a drifter. And maybe in this moment you would just say, you know, Lord, I'm not happy where I'm at. That's a good starting place. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how to get back, but I, I'm not happy where I'm at. God, don't abandon me. And he won't. So we'll share in communion. Peel the top off if you would first. Just that top and get that wafer out. And just look at me. This little wafer, it's not like, of course, the bread that they would have had in that Passover meal. It's just a symbol. But this little bread, this piece of bread, is a symbol that Jesus said this. When, when he took that bread and broke it, he said, this, this represents my body, which is going to be broken for you, which means my body is going to pay your price. When you eat this little wafer, he said, remember, your sin's paid in full. Let's eat together and share together. Go ahead and pull the tab back on, on the cup. And the Bible tells us as well that Jesus took the cup and he prayed over it and he said to them that this cup is the new covenant. So when you hold this little cup of grape juice, again, it's a symbol. And like the bread represented the fact of dying for you, this little cup represents new life for you, new beginning in Jesus. Let's share together. Let me offer a prayer. Father, we pause in this moment, and it's a beautiful picture right in this sermon along this thought process as communion is this perfect picture that you want us back. You paid a huge price to have us, and you want us back, so thank you for that pray for the person this morning that perhaps has made that decision to follow you. Yea, for them. Thank you for that price being paid. Thank you. Don't hold grudges. Man, I know my own life. Thank you for not holding grudges. Um, as we stand in this moment, may we stand in awe of this incredible thing that you have given to us, and that is eternal life in you, forgiveness, and new beginnings. We give you thanks. And even as we now look at the very last part of this, May your truth sink into us, deep into our hearts as to your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And let me end with the last point of the sermon. So communion makes the great second point, which is simply this, he wants you back. And now the third step is profound, so don't miss it. The third step, when you've drifted away, just come back. Just come back. It's just that simple, just come back. Don't be embarrassed. Pick your head up and then come back. Hebrews 3.15 says, this is what the scripture says. If you hear God's voice today, then don't be stubborn. Like, you know, your ancestors. Or I put this in, don't be stubborn like you were before. When you hear his voice, just come back. Let's wrap up. Peter's story has a great ending I love. You know, we have him standing by the fire and we see him completely abandoning Jesus. But there's two key moments in the story of Jesus where he purposely calls Peter out. Great moments for us who have, who have drifted. The first one's at the resurrection. Literally the first Easter morning. Remember the story? The women come to the tomb. They're going to come and finish the embalming process. They get there. The stone is rolled away. The body of Jesus is gone. There's an angel there. Remember what the angel said? The angel said, hey, listen, you're here looking for the living among the dead. Looking for Jesus. He's alive. And then he says this, and go tell his disciples. Remember the last part? His disciples and Peter. They actually say, go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter gets a shout out at the grave by the angel. Why? Because of all people who would need to hear the words that's not over yet would be Peter. Jesus, you know, God through his son Jesus, through that angel I should say, says to the angel, go tell disciples and tell Peter it's not over. Pick your head up. And second time, sometime later, they're out fishing, and Jesus shows up on the shore, and they catch this miraculous catch of fish, and they realize it's Jesus, and Peter jumps in the water and runs to the shore, and Jesus has fish cooking on the fire for them. He feeds them breakfast, and then he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Remember, Peter goes, I, I do. You know I do. Feed my sheep. 
Peter, do you love me? You know I do. Then feed my sheep. And then he says, third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's a little distraught, saying, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus says, yeah, I know you love me, so I'm giving you a mission. Now catch this. He doesn't say, I know, I just need to check because quite honestly, you abandoned me. And I'm not sure you love me or not. I got to tell you, you betrayed me. And I'm not sure you're much use for the kingdom. He goes, no, I got a job for you. Go feed my sheep. These are great moments in the life of Peter. And if you've ever wandered away, or if in the future you wander away, just come back. Final passage. I like this from Isaiah chapter 1. Now come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I'll make them white as snow. Listen to this final story. 1972. 1972. Newly married couple, just weeks, been married. They go up to his parents' cabin in the Adirondacks. I like the story because it's in the Adirondacks, it goes by. Goes to the Adirondacks and they go out in a canoe to, to a new married couple. He's paddling and she's sitting in the front doing nothing, which, you know, fits the picture. He's paddling. She's got her hands over the side of the boat just enjoying the day, cool, cold lake water. And all of a sudden she realizes in the cold water her engagement ring fell off. And she's heartbroken. And, of course, sees the young new married guy. He goes, don't worry, I'll find it. It's shallow. So he spends the rest of the day, the rest of their time, diving, looking for nothing. So he says this to her, I'll get you a new ring because she's heartbroken. I'll get you a new ring. She goes, you don't understand. I don't want a new ring. I want that ring. That's the ring you put on my finger. And so she never got a new ring. In some ways, she's like my wife, which I really appreciate. She said this. She goes, I don't want you spending money on another ring. We need other things now. We bought a couch. They bought a couch. Other things said the ring. My wife was that way. She'd say, you know what? Nope. Let's get the things we need. 1992. That was 1972. 1992. They're back for a summer vacation with their teenage kids. And dad and son go fishing. They catch a seven and a half pound trout. They come back. They're going to have dinner. And they're all excited. And they clean the trout. And they open it up. And inside the belly of a trout is the ring. You can look at the story up. It's in numbers of books. The ring, the exact, it's the ring. And this now not young married guy gets to slip this ring on his wife's hand a second time. And let me tell you the purpose of that story in this moment. Sometimes we drift and we feel like we're so far gone that some things are so lost they'll never be found. You are wrong. For with God, nothing is ever so lost that it can't be found. In fact, he's already found you. He's just waiting for you to see that you have been found. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, as we dismiss ourselves, remind us that we do drift. The real issue is when we realize we're drifting, what do we do? Just come back. Teach us to do the right things along the way that keep us from that drift. Remind us you don't hold grudges and you wait for us, long for us to come home. Remind us of these truths. Dismiss us in your grace. Amen. God bless you.